Radio shows you love from the people you know. This is Sam Talks Technology. Hello, good afternoon and welcome everyone. Happy New Year. I guess we should get that one out of the way very quickly. Thanks for joining us today on Sam Talks Technology. I've got a wonderful guest, somebody I've been looking forward to interviewing since I first met him a couple of months back uh, uh, where he was giving his talk. Uh, my guest today is Dan Wagner. Dan is a serial entrepreneur. Um, for those of you in the tech industry, you'll know Dan. He started companies like Made, Vendor, Power, and he's got his current com- company called Resolve. Dan, hello. How are you? Yes, thank you, Sam, and uh, Happy New Year to you and all your listeners. Thank you very much. Now, Dan, um, we're going to start off with what is Resolve? Well, Resolve is my new business. Um, it is a, um, a new platform uh, for retailers to engage with um, uh, retailers and brands to engage with consumers, uh, and it's uh, founded on the concept that the existing systems aren't fit for purpose for mobile devices. So we've created a new kind of commerce platform for mobile devices. It allows you to interact with the world around you very easily using your mobile phone. Okay, so that sounds really interesting. Let's break that down a little bit. Sure. First of all, why did you start Resolve? What was the embryo of an idea that came up that said, yeah, I think it's broken. Why, why don't I try something new? Well, for 16 years, I ran a business called Vendor, uh, right. which I started back in sort of uh, 1998. And Vendor was a, uh, was a platform for e-commerce. So we, we, we created the tools that allowed retailers and brands to run their e-commerce sites. And, you know, as the years went on, it became more and more apparent to me that um, the mobile device is the device of the future. I think we all accept that. And I also felt that the uh, e-commerce systems and even the point-of-sale systems that retailers use weren't really addressing the needs of the mobile consumer. Um, e-commerce, when you, when you access a website from your mobile phone, um, you do so either using an app or using a browser that, that tries to replicate the page on a small screen. And I don't think that the mobile phone is just simply a small computer. I think it is a very different device that has uh, much greater potential. And so I wanted to try to design a new platform, a commerce platform, or an engagement platform rather, that, that was perfectly suited for the mobile phone. So it's quite an ambitious kind of concept because nobody's doing anything like that. And, and my view is that M-commerce as we know it today doesn't exist and Resolve is M-commerce. Okay. So um, explain to me how I would use Resolve. What do I need to do? Do I need to download an app? Do I need to just go into a shop? How, how do I engage? So, or, or do I not engage? Is it a B2B solution? It's really, it's really a piece of technology that any retailer or brand or handset manufacturer or um, tele. Uh, telecommunications operator um, can put on the phone. So, for example, let's say I'm Marks and Spencer. I can put Resolve technology into my M&S app, or maybe I'm Transport for London. I can put uh, Resolve technology into the TFL app, or um, you know, any uh, social media site, uh, a platform can do it. For example, Snapchat. Any any of these guys can just put our code in their app, and what the code does is it allows the phone to wake up to the world around it. And, and we, we call that wake-up, um, uh, uh, that wake-up sort of call is, is, is uh, created through triggers, what we okay. call triggers. Now, the triggers are images, audio, where the user is at any point in time. For example, we're sitting in Marlow, so just being here could be a trigger because the phone knows where you are. So it could trigger an alert on the phone, and the, and the phone's like an email would come in. It looks like an email come in, but it's just an alert on the phone that says, hey, 
there's a 10% off your coffee at the nearby Marlowe Cafe. So that would be a trigger that results in a transaction. The transaction would be I buy the coffee. And so that's one example, using a location as a trigger. But another trigger might be I'm flipping through a magazine or I'm standing at the bus stop and there's a poster or the, uh, an ad in a magazine and I see something I like, I wave my phone over it, the phone recognises what it is and allows me to buy it with one tap or engage with it. Maybe it's a, an ad saying, do you want to take this car for a test drive? I wave my phone over it, I tap, and the advertiser then has all my data, what I, what I interacted with, uh, even maybe when I want to have the test drive. So it's an instant engagement tool and it reacts to physical uh, the world around you. Basically. Okay, it's difficult to explain, uh, you know, in the, on a radio format. Yeah. Because it, but well, but for example, another okay. example might be this, right? We're talking on the phone, and while we're talking, somebody listening, it triggers a transaction on the phone to say, "Hey, are you interested in Resolve? Click here and learn more." And and that would be an audio trigger. So we we have audio and image and geolocation and. Uh, you know, video and and all of these things can trigger a transaction on the phone, and that's what kind of the premise is all about. Okay, so I, I'm lucky enough; I've seen Resolve. Yes, um, pretty cool, website? isn't it? Yeah, how no, cool it's great. is it? Yeah, it's very cool. I mean, what's the website? Let's it's get Resolve R E Z O L V E dot com. Brilliant. Resolve with a Z instead of an S. And on that uh, site, there's a video, a thirty uh, or one and a half minute video that shows you exactly how it works. It's pretty cool. Okay, so let's take that example. If I'm at a bus stop and I see an image, is it the requirement that there's an image resolve image? Yes, it's a resolve-enabled image. I mean, we... uh, And I'll tell you why, because let's... uh, I'll give you two examples of why. Typically, a a manufacturer will send out a stock image. Uh, So let's say it's an iPhone 11, right? Apple will send that out to Carphone Warehouse and they'll send it out to, you know, other uh, phone retailers, Dixons and so on. And uh, those people will advertise the new iPhone 11. Some people will advertise it like Vodafone or EE. And they'll say, come and get a subscription to the iPhone 11, you know, uh, a mobile phone contract. Now, if you're just recognizing the image, then potentially technology is not quite there yet but let's say it's there it says ah that's an iphone 11 but it won't know it's an iphone 11 being offered by vodafone on a contract at 35 pound a month or whatever okay what our technology does is it allows the advertiser in this case vodafone to resolve enable that advert and now when you wave your phone over it you get exactly what the contract is that vodafone want to sell you Right. On your phone, and instantly you can engage with that. Now, the very same image could be advertised by uh, EE, and when I wave my phone over that, it will be an EE engagement that I get. And, and that's important to the advertiser, and it's important to the retailer, it's important to the brand. Okay. Now, one of my first initial questions when I heard you say how Resolve works was I waved my phone over and you, you said that fundamentally I get my location data and information about me. Is it an opt-in? So my privacy is one of the things that instantly went up. You know, one of the things that people might concern, so let's address it, is is my privacy being compromised? Am I a subscriber to Resolve as a consumer, or how how are you getting my data? So so Resolve is not a service provider. We are a technology 
right. you know, that any retailer or brand can You're use. So, so again, yeah. so again, let's use the example. It's Marks and Spencer. Yeah. They've put Resolve technology into their app. What does that do for M&S? Well, it allows me as a consumer when I'm in M&S to interact with their posters, their magazines, their leaflets, the audio in their store. When I'm walking near a store, they could alert me to the fact that there's a store nearby and there's an offer being made and various other things. Now, it's up to M&S to decide how they want to capture and maintain your data, how they want to alert you. Obviously, there are um, laws in Europe, GDPR, that that make sure that you are notified if this data is being used and, and, and how you use it. But it's not, it's not Resolve who deals with that. It's really the, the partner who's using our technology who makes those decisions. Uh, so we're not capturing any data. We're just a tech provider that provides a technology that allows these things to happen. And then the responsible a partner of ours, MNS in this case, or TFL, or wherever it is, will manage this in the way that they need to by the by the law and by uh, respect for their customers. Okay, and is the transaction? Let's say, let's take the the example you gave. You said Vodafone. I I flash my phone over. I get an offer. Is the transaction done by Resolve or is the transaction no, done by Vodafone? It's done by Vodafone. Okay. So we're, we're just a a, a veneer yep. that sits between the advertiser or the brand and the consumer um, think of us as a as the intel inside okay. the chip inside Perfect. your your pc computer yep. we we provide the chips and you know the the manufacturer makes the computer and we just do certain tasks within the application to to allow this thing to happen this magic to happen and it is magic it's a it's a visual experience that you know we're trying to you yeah. and i both know but trying to get it across over the on the radio is is not easy but it, it's it's a visually uh, rewarding experience okay so one one way of visualizing is the film the minority report when he yes. walks around through the airport and he's getting offers and ads now can I turn off these things? So if I don't interact with the ad, it's never going to pop up. It's not going to correct. Like push correct. So in your constantly pinging. Absolutely correct. So you're absolutely right. The movie Minority Report, for those who've seen it, has Tom Cruise walking around um, uh, department stores and stuff. And as he's walking around, the screens that are advertising to him change their advertising to say, "Hey Tom," or whatever his name is in the movie. Um, you, you know, do you need the shaver or do you need whatever? And it's very personalised. Um, now the reality is that that's exactly what Resolve can do. It's one of the use cases. And outside of Europe, uh, that's how our customers are deploying it because they don't need consent of users to personalise offers in, for example, China, where we're... I was going to say, one of your biggest markets is... At the moment, we're focusing very much on the Far East, but we are now starting to move into Europe and and the US. Um, And uh, and so there's no issues on privacy concerns there because in China, there isn't any. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Great test market. But here in in Europe, um, you know, Marks and Spencer would say, do you want us to present personalised advertising to you as you walk through uh, adverts presented by us and the user can decide if they want to or not. I mean, in my case, I'd say yes, because I want, if I'm going to walk past a poster which is advertising something to me, I'd rather it was something that was relevant rather than baby nappies or something. Yeah, I've always said that um, the trend, I said this about 10 years ago, the trend will be that actually people with money will get ads and people without money will never get them because the advertisers don't want to waste their money on people who can't afford to spend it, right? So... There's no point showing me an Aston Martin ad if all I can afford is a Ford Capri, right? right? And so I think we'll start to look at people as, uh, I guess, the value that they can offer and their opt-in. So if if I'm not in, if I'm the sort of person who's not interested in Marks and Spencers, then there's no point in me interacting with them or anything else, and then not 
worth them wasting time or money trying to get me through an offer. Yes, but there's also sometimes you don't know that you oh. want a sandwich from M&S. Um, you might be hungry and you might normally go to Pret-a-Manger and you've never been to M&S and they get you at that moment. Okay. And that, that's also very valuable. So I think sometimes, um, you know, we don't always know um, about the products that we want to buy until we're made aware of them. That's what advertising is all about. Okay. So um, with Resolve, um, let's take a little step back. Um, how big's the company? How well funded are you? Where are you in the growth cycle? Are you are you scaled up as they now like to say? You know, uh, so you've gone beyond seed. Just did you self fund the company? Had how did you get going? Well, it's been a difficult journey um, because I started from the ashes of my previous venture, which which collapsed kind of spectacularly. And we'll cover some of that later. Yeah. Later on. So so it was a. It's probably been the most difficult um, startup activity of my life and uh, but also uh, in many respects the most rewarding because you know I think an entrepreneur's journey is not just about you know creating value for himself or and or his him or her family but it's also about the achievement that 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 comes with success you know of, of creating something uh, that's a living successful venture and um, resolve is is uh, um, proving to be very rewarding in that respect and and you know it came from a very difficult birth if you know what i mean and uh, and it's now um you know really beginning to thrive and i think 2020 is a kind of coming out year we've been four years in the making uh, we've been focusing on Asia and, um, you know, success is now starting to come through as we see adoption taking place and so on. So uh, there's about 68 people in the company, mainly uh, spread around the world, uh, not very many people in the UK, okay. uh, although we're headquartered here. Um, but um, we have a lot of people in Asia. We're, we're operating, we're live in India, China, uh Korea, Taiwan, and we are uh, going live in certain markets in Europe in, in the coming months uh, and in the United States. Okay. So um, I think we were talking before. Um, you're one of these entrepreneurs, I think, who, who has the expression I use, go big or go home. You, you're not one of these, I'm going to just create a lifestyle business. You really do risk it all and go for it, don't you? Well, I, I wouldn't like to... I don't set out to do it that way. Okay. I mean, I, I, I set out with a vision about how um, I could create something uh, that that is a utility you know that people find valuable businesses companies partners brands and so on um and consumers that that they find valuable and that they can use and i think that's been a theme throughout my career so it just so happens that the ideas i have tend to be you know in order to be successful they need to be global and and tech businesses tend to be that way unless you're creating a kind of um uh, uh um an app or something that is that is uh, for a local service. Um, if you're providing an infrastructure play, which has always been the nature of my activities, then you you have to go global because uh, if you're not part of the infrastructure globally, then you're just a bit player in the UK. And we must remember sometimes, you know, the UK is a very, very small market, you know. Uh, you can fit the UK in terms of population. We should terms. tell the Brexiteers that. Basically. Yeah, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a big market in terms of the economic clout uh, and reputation. But in terms of people, consumers, you know, there's about 60 million people in the UK. There's 300 million in Turkey. There's 300 million in Indonesia. I mean, there's 60 million in Korea, we, in South Korea. So we don't always equate ourselves to the size of South Korea. 
career, but, but we kind of are. Uh, and career is a very affluent market. So sometimes we have a big view of ourselves in the world, and reality is we're, we're a small country. Um, and although I'm British and jingoistic, you know, very supportive of being Britain, I've been here, you know, aside from a few stints living in America, um, mainly because my businesses were, were there, um, you know, I've been very, very uh, grounded uh, here in the UK, come what may. Just because you just mentioned it, it's a question that came through to me. It's Would you have not found it easier moving to the US where certainly investment and uh, the opportunity and the idea of success and failure is just very, very different to what we have here in this country? Would you not have gone to the US or did you ever think of going to the US? Yes, of course. I mean, I think, uh, uh, well, you asked a few questions there. I think the answer is yes, I think it would have been a lot easier for me in the US. Um, I've been trying to plough a field here, you know, a a path that, um, you know, hadn't been ploughed in the way that I was trying to do it before. There wasn't many tech entrepreneurs in 1984 here in the UK and um, and certainly there wasn't any who were trying to do something quite so outlandish as what I did with my first company and what I've done subsequently. So, uh, you know, in a way I've been trying to sort of change um, uh, sentiment in the UK. It's not an easy thing to do and to be honest with you, as I get older, I start to realise, well, actually, I don't think I'm ever going to do that. Uh, nevertheless, I like living here. I'm comfortable in the UK. I'm familiar here. And although I feel very comfortable in America, I wouldn't want to live there. I, I like to live here. Okay, that's that's fair enough. Okay, you mentioned it. Um, 1984, the year of the famous Apple Big Brother ad. Um, I was just leaving school, so <laughs> that's that's you, you, you were setting up a company when I was just leaving school, so I feel really bad about myself now. <laughs> I feel really old. That's the No, that's no, the... <laughs> we, are, we are actually of the same age, practically, within a couple of years, so yes. that's quite, quite yeah. interesting. Um, yeah. So let's go back, 1984. Um, what were you doing and how did you start MADE? What happened? So I got a job in advertising. I was quite interested in photography. I'd left school at 16. I didn't have any, um, you know, uh, reputable qualifications. And, um, and I managed to... Um, uh, convince an ad agency to take me on as a runner. I was earning £2,500 a year, which was below the minimum wage then. Um, but it was a great privilege to, to, to work in a, in, a, in a central London ad agency, which at the time was a very hot um, We just have to remind to people, in. there was no internet, there was no... no. None of that was Well, around. there was the internet, but not as we know it. I mean, yeah. there, was a, there was a platform called uh, Janet and, and ARPANET. ARPANET uh, Janet, was the, the university. Janet internet. was the university platform and, and ARPANET was the military platform. Um, but there was no internet as we know. There's no World Wide Web. Yeah. In fact, the World Wide Web in 1984, um, you know, hadn't hadn't even been presented by uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee. I was going to say it wasn't world. It wasn't worldly. It wasn't wide, wide, and it wasn't the web. No, it wasn't any of those things. <laughs> in fact, Tim Berners-Lee presented the concept of addressing uh, the World Wide Web with WWW in 1989. So that was five years later, and I don't think we started using WWW as a as an addressing system until 1992, right. which was nearly eight years later. So quite an early, this is very early on. Um, and I was working in advertising and I was running around and I was just a junior and um, uh, I was working on new business pitches, which is where the agency tries to win new business from advertisers. And what would happen is typically a beauty parade. The advertiser would come in, maybe it's, you know, Kellogg's or something, and they say, well, we want you to advertise cornflakes. What would you do? And the agency puts on a, a show and hopefully get picked for the business. Uh, and we were being um, – uh, and I was working on those pitches helping support the uh, – 
uh, the new business team with uh, market research and news clippings and anything like that. And in those days, you'd have to go to a library and get clippings from the newspapers. You know, there was no, oh, you know, we, we, we forget, you know, but it's, now you just pick your phone up and Google it. But it, well, in those I, days, there was none of that. I remember having a PR agency specifically do my clippings for me. Yes. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So, um, so I would go running off to the library and, and get these sort of articles on the cornflakes market or whatever it happened to be that we were pitching for. And on this occasion, British Telecom came in and they said, look, you've seen the new fax machines that have just been introduced. And people were like, yeah, they're amazing. You can send a fax from Australia to the UK. Instantly, an image comes out the other end. And, you know, in those days, that was really quite breathtaking. Uh, and and they, they explained to us, well, actually, you know, what's happening there is that there's data being transmitted down the telephone line to the other machine and it decodes it we'll go oh, okay and they said and computers can do this even better they can they can interact with each other down the telephone line and what we want you to do is promote this to businesses so the agency team looked at me and said you know what dan you need to go off and brief us because we've got no idea what they're talking about and as i went off to to learn more about it i was kind of really taken with it. I thought, oh, this is amazing, you know, and there was no service. There was no service that had a computer at one end and a computer at the other end talking to each other. There was some academic uh, things, but there was nothing commercial. So I immediately quit my job, you know, in a naive, rash moment and, um, and decided that I would set up a company to create an archive of newspapers and market research and, and clippings to allow agencies, it was originally just for agencies, to do their uh, new business pitches very quickly. They could ask a question, how big is the toothpaste market? Tell me about Colgate or whatever. And the answers would come back from the newspapers in the UK and so on. Crazy idea. I mean, I had no money. I had no, you know, there was, it was, it was mad. But to be fair, my father, uh, who ran BMW at the time yeah. uh, in the UK, so he was a corporate uh, executive, uh, supported me fully. My mother, on the other hand, burst into tears, absolutely thought I was throwing my life away. I'd only just got the decent job for the first time, and now I was throwing it all away. But uh, I was given a great deal of support. And how old were you then, roughly? 20. 20. Yeah. So, so there you are, you're living in a bedsit, 20, starting a business, having seen an idea. That's quite, quite prescient of you to take that whole thing and i don't think it is actually i mean no. No, i had nothing to lose I was, as i mentioned before i was earning two and a half grand a year which you know even then didn't really do a lot uh, there was a very good social security system in place back then i don't know what it's like now so i could leave my job be unemployed and get income which equated not far off to what i was earning when i was working so right. i i had a kind of safety net there i wasn't used to very much um I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to nice restaurants and going on holiday anywhere. I mean, you know, I was, I didn't have any money. So I had very little to lose. I, I'd like to think that um, I, I was perfectly placed to take a risk like that. I think the, the difference is, and you mentioned it before, if I was in America, I would have been funded much easier. But in the UK, when I went to see a venture capital firm in the, in the West End, um, in the city, rather, um, as I walked in, they said, well, when's your boss coming to present? Yeah. Uh, you know, and I said, well, it's, it's me. And they went, I'm sorry, we're, we're really not interested. Thank you. I mean, nobody could take me seriously at 20 years old back then. And I think today we think very differently of young, um, young people. But uh, back then there was a tremendous uh, prejudice around uh, young people and those that had experience. Okay, so, so let's take 
what happened with Made? Let's have a look. So you, you've got this idea, you've seen some technology. How did you go about getting Made off the ground? What, what was your you know, first lucky break, I guess? Well, the first thing I had to do was convince um, somebody a newspaper or or a, uh, or a publisher to give me their rights to distribute their content electronically, right? right? Now, nobody had done this before. We're talking about the days where newspapers and periodicals and publications were all using plates to print, so they would create metal plates and letters. They'd put it into a, into yeah, a plate I remember and print whopping, it. The yeah. digitisation and whopping. Yeah, so there was no word processing. It wasn't like I could go and ask for a disk of their data, you know, from last night. We'd have to retype it into wow. a computer. Okay. And we did that overnight. And, and me and some of my colleagues who, who eventually went on to run the business, you know, uh, a big international business, were typing through the night, you know, uh, articles from the paper and stuff. Um so, uh, The Economist... I hope you were uh, a touch typer, not a single no, finger. No, <laughs> we were useless. Useless. It was single fingers, you know, um, <laughs> learning as we went. Um, so I went to see a director of The Economist and, uh, and, was, and I convinced him, uh, uh, Derek Smith, actually, to... It was the guy's name, and to, to give me the ability to distribute The Economist and The Economist Intelligence Unit research online um, and pay them 50 pence for every pound that we sold and um and for them it was nothing i mean there, there was no online market yeah, they there had was no, no revenue from nothing, it, so, you know, so, revenue. so the risk was giving it to a 20 year old who had nothing yeah um and i remember uh, getting that contract it was an exclusive contract for five years and the moment i got that i could then walk in to the times and the telegraph and and all the other major research publishers and sign them up with exclusive contracts for long periods of time um because i had the credibility of this other major publisher and uh, and then there was sort of the snowball started to roll and and once i had those contracts you know uh, it kind of ring fenced and and, and isolated uh, the business from a lot because down the road a couple of years later dow jones news retrieval entered the market reuters entered the market bloomberg entered the market all these guys entered the market but they had to come and wholesale the content from my, from me because i'd secured all these exclusive licenses so i kind of i was fortunate in being able to to protect myself with these contracts and then i was also selling against them in the market so there was kind of a frenemy uh, activity going on there okay so uh when did you get to the point where you thought maids taking off you because i remember you telling me you went international you you grew the whole business so how did you go from your bedsit to an office to an international company so i got uh, uh, somebody gave me 1500 pounds and i gave them 10 percent of the company uh, you know <laughs> you know i did what i had to do like to peter stay alive. jones from the dragon yeah 1500 quid in those days for you know it was like a given that i was on the dole and you know was a huge amount of money um I went to it. I would I had a whole debate with the board because I was invited to go to a trade show in New York, and, and they all said, "Look, you know, we can't afford to send you to New York." And I said, "Well, we're not selling anything here. Nobody's interested in this. You know, it's very nobody has computers. Nobody can access." Anyway, I went to New York for this trade show, and in one sort of trade show of two or three days, I sold three contracts to our service and um, came back with these contracts from Colgate Palmolive and and so on. And uh, my board said, "Well, what are you doing back here? You just sold three contracts in two days. Get back out to the states." So for the next couple of years i lived in america coming backwards and forwards and america was more advanced the people were using computers there uh, in 1985 now and we started to get some momentum and then when uh, the financial times and reuters entered the market things got pretty hairy because you know we were charging a subscription 
three and a half thousand pounds uh, a year plus usage of the service and it was a, a challenge and and the financial times took a decision because they weren't selling anything either to really try to compete with us on price and they dropped their price to a hundred pound sign up fee and we had an emergency board meeting because the implications of that was we would go out of business i mean we could not we didn't have in venture capital to fund us through that kind of aggressive pricing mm-hmm. and we needed three thousand four hundred fifty pound every time we signed a customer just to cover the cost of of selling into them and the, the overhead of running the business now, I'd been reading a book uh, by Trout and Reese called Guerrilla Marketing, which is uh, quite famous. And for those who haven't read it, you should read it. It's a wonderful book. I was trying to self-learn uh, business uh, in these years. And uh, in it, uh, Guerrilla Marketing, the premise is that you should always do things out of the ordinary. There's a number of things that I think are, are life lessons for an entrepreneur. One is um, always take the hill, always... Um, act as if you're the winner and the boss and the market leader, even if you're not, because it instills confidence in customers and instills confidence in your partners and so on. And the other is always do things that that nobody else expects, the market don't expect you to do. And so faced with this uh, prospect of either dropping our price to £100 to compete with the Financial Times or going out of business, um, I suggested to the board that we put our prices up. Excuse me, to uh, four two th- four thousand two hundred and fifty, which pounds. is totally anathema to what everyone would have expected you to do. Excuse me, yes, it, it is, and um, and nobody did expect it. And when we put our price up, the reaction was amazing. We signed twenty five major accounts in the UK in one month, and the reason we signed twenty five major accounts in the UK in one month is that the market saw FT drop its price. They were watching these two players in the market. They thought, I think, Made, which was the name of the company, had a better platform. But they saw that the Financial Times, you know, had dropped their price to £100. And then they saw us put our price up and they immediately thought, we'd taken the hill, we're the winner, and they're the loser. Rather than us competing on price, they saw it as a matter of desperation for the FT and a matter of affirmation. And uh, for us, the quality product. correct, and and so we won all this business, and it really that was when I believed there was a real change in the fortunes of the business here in the UK, anyway, and 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 from that point forward, we just went on uh, to be very very successful. So okay, so how long? was made around and and you floated it didn't you yeah so so it, we started the business in you know 84 really it sort of got going in 85 um and then we went public on the london stock market uh, 10 years later in 1994 was that one of the first tech companies to go public it was one of the first tech businesses to go public in the uk when i say tech first sort of internet kind of businesses although we nobody called it an internet business then they called it a new media business for some okay. bizarre reason but um it was one of the first and it was quite um uh, shall we say uh, high profile <laughs> uh, it's probably the most uh, partly because I was 30 years old now and um, the market found that kind of difficult to digest because nobody had listed a public company at the age of 30 before or younger so I was the youngest uh, public company CEO uh, of, a, of a London Stock Exchange I bet uh, that VC Com- wished they'd put his money in then when well, you, yes, because, of course, it, uh, the valuation of the business, I think, was £120 million pounds, right. uh, at that point. And, um, and so, yes, it had done quite well over the 10 years. But it had been 10 years. I mean, it's not any, it wasn't easy. And we, and we were operating now all over the world. And it was a successful business. And um, the market were very um, uh, dismissive. 
Um, I mean, when I say the market, the commentary, the commentary around the business was very dismissive. But the market funded us, and we and we went public, and it was very successful. And a year later, uh, we went public on Nasdaq um, with a secondary listing, which was also uh, very successful, and and the business really was taking off now. Right. So so everything's rosy in the garden. You, you, you're a multimillionaire, clearly. Um, you're, you're, I don't know if you had many other investors involved with you, but the business is great. So so what happened next? Why, why, why didn't Maid go further and further? You sold it, I believe, at some point. I sold it to, to uh, Thomson, now Thomson Reuters. Um, so most of our content was licensed, and the largest content provider was the Thomson family um, who owned a lot of uh, scientific and technical publications and, and, and so on. Um, we'd been approached by a number of uh, acquirers over the years. Um, in the end, we sold to Thompson for half a billion dollars. And wow. I okay. can't say that's been just too bad. <laughs> um, the, you know, the stock had gone up higher uh, during the dot-com boom uh, and came off like all other uh, tech companies. But... Um, for almost every investor made a lot of money and and when we went public most of my staff about 20 something staff and most of the senior staff uh, became multimillionaires so right. you know i'm i'm very proud of the achievement of of made it became the world leader in online information over the 16 years that i ran it and and before it got sold uh, i was the ceo for the entire period um it, it ended up with um offices in 46 countries and operating in 192 countries uh, 1700 staff i mean it was a it was a decent business 330 million in sales so i mean you know and a profit 60 million in profit so i think it was a you know it was a good business and you know it came Very from good. nothing it came from that bedsit yeah so so there you are you're on top of the world i guess um you're 30 something running a it just sold your company yes retirement was no not don't be silly of course not <laughs> i mean you know the, the as i said to you before you know uh i think for most entrepreneurs certainly is the case for me i think the journey is not about um is not about getting to a point and retiring it's 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 a passion you know right. it's not it's not about a, a specific um end game well certainly it isn't for me now i know a lot of entrepreneurs have a very specific end game you know, i'm going to create this business and in five years i'm going to generate x million from for myself and then i'm going to go and open a pub i get that and and but that's not me uh, mine is a is, is is a journey of passion and, yep. and love uh for what i'm doing and uh, I'm very lucky because um, I've loved every business I've ever started. I love, I love the product. Uh, I love working with the people around me. And if I don't like the people around me, I don't want to work with them. Yeah. So, you know, it's been um, it's been an enjoyable... I've had an enjoyable career. In fact, Simon Sinek's new book is called The Infinite Game. And he talks about it not being a, a singular point, but it is the whole journey through life. Uh, you know, how you how you approach... Each business is not with an end game in mind, but it's just you keep going. Yeah. So, well, you know, I, I mean, I can't imagine just not doing anything, you know, doing the gardening or something. I just can't imagine that. That's just not me. I mean, I, I, I like the thrill of uh, of creating something and, and, and making it, you know, become a reality. Okay. So you've just sort of made... Sorry, 
Because I'm curious, what does MADE stand for? Well, <laughs> MADE, I came up with the name MADE in the bath, you know. Um, uh, and MADE stood for Market Analysis and Information Database. Great. <laughs> uh, which is a bit of a mouthful. And the problem was that when we got to America and we really started to get, go big, you know, we had offices, you know, seven or eight markets in the US, the people we were selling to were librarians who were converting their traditional libraries into digital libraries uh, and were using our services as part of the transformation. And um, they felt that the name made was kind of, um, uh, you know, um, kind of a rude comment around old maids who work in libraries. Right. Uh, of course it wasn't, but, you know, they, they thought it was. So we changed the name to Dialogue Information Services. So it became kind of made Dialogue. Um, okay. Anyway, so uh, made, you know, kind of, it wasn't, it, there was no, um, you know, special branding agency involved in that name. It was just, you know, I just came up with it. It was your eureka yeah. moment in the bar. Yeah. Okay, so, um, Vendor. Yeah, so was that was that the next one, or did you do anything in between, or was that no? I mean, there's you know, there's a lots of things going on um, because uh, Made really became uh, one of the biggest uh, e-commerce platforms in the world because we we were selling content all over the world to consumers and to businesses who were accessing it in lots of different ways. Some were accessing news through CompuServe and AOL, who were our partners, and we were distributing news through them. There were others who were in corporate libraries, and so there was lots of different ways, and we were taking money in different ways. We're taking money through credit cards. We're taking money through invoice billing. We're taking money in different payment methods all over the world. Uh, it occurred to me as we came into the late 90s that our skill set in technology is commerce and we should be building the tools to allow retailers to run their e-commerce platforms. Now, the market, the, you know, the analysts and the investor community weren't convinced about this and so they didn't really like the idea very much. So, uh, But nevertheless, I created a division uh, to do that. And when I sold uh, the information business to Thomson Reuters, I kept the commerce business. And uh, that business we called Vendor. Um, and um, uh, the, the vision around Vendor was that we would create a platform, and, and this again was kind of a bit outlandish back then, um, that we would build it in the internet and serve it to customers from the internet. Uh, what I mean by that is at the time, everyone was buying computers and then building applications to run on those computers in their offices, and then they would run their e-commerce platform like that. So retailers would bring in tech skills, they'd license software, they'd install the software, and then they'd run it. And my thought was that in the future, people would rent that infrastructure. They wouldn't have machines. I mean, we all know that today. We call yeah, it we the call cloud. It and and cloud, cloud yeah. Yeah. But, but back in the late 90s, this wasn't something that people fully understood. And, and so I wanted to build a platform that was enterprise class, that could run the biggest retail sites in the world from the internet itself. And Vendor was that platform. And, um, uh, you know, it was uh, a, another journey over 16 years uh, before I sold it in the end to Oracle in 2014. Uh, and by that time, we'd become market leader in Europe and in the US as well. And so the sort of customers we had, we had here in the UK, and I don't know if they're still using it today or not, I wouldn't be surprised, uh, was Boohoo, which, you know, is a very successful fashion chain. It came, went from nothing to being the leader using Vendor's platform. Uh, and then we had people like um, TJX, um, 
uh, TK Maxx, uh, you know, Paper Chase, Russell and Bromley, the Royal Mail, Tesco Fashion, um, and, and then many others uh, across Europe. And in the US, Neiman Marcus, Land's End, uh, J. Crew, Under Armour. So very big accounts. And then that business was sold as a private company to, uh, to Oracle in 2014. Okay. Now, before you, before you started that business, I, I assume you had this time around VCs and angels and everyone else throwing money at you. Well, funnily enough, no, I didn't, um, because when the business, when the business uh, made dialogue was sold to Thompson, about six months later, we had the dot-com crash, uh, or around the same time. It was that year. And so everyone said e-commerce is dead. The internet's dead. There was a terrible recoil after the uh, dot-com crash, where investors who you know, had been throwing money at anything with the word internet in front of it, um, suddenly felt that it was, there was no future in the internet. So it took, it was actually not very easy at all. And by the time that market started to come back, which was sort of <coughs> 2004 or five, you know, vendor had got on, a, or got off it, you know, got off uh, to a good start. So we kind of didn't need it. It wasn't, you know, things had moved on, but um, no, it wasn't, it was a, it was a difficult start, but it was not as difficult as made um, because now I'd made money and I was more comfortable. I was, you know, I was used to it. I knew what I had to do. I was more comfortable in the startup world. Uh, and I, I knew all the th- I didn't have to learn on the job. And so it was an easier uh, job. Although there's one story, an anecdote, if you don't mind, Sam. Mm, please. Uh, um, I remember driving up to, um, you know, bear in mind, it was only a, a year or two before that I had 1,700 people. I was in an office in Leicester Square. I had offices all over the world, secretaries, this, that, and the other. It was all very easy. Um, and here I was in my car driving up to Leeds to go and see a catalogue uh, retailer. Um, it was pouring with rain. I was in the car for nearly three hours, and misting up and so on, get there, walk in, walk across the car park in some, uh, I think it was Bradford, uh, across the car park. Um, to grim. The, it was pretty grim, right? <laughs> pouring with rain. By the time I got from the car to the front uh, reception, I was soaking wet and damp with my computer that I was lugging about, which... Um, uh, and I said, you know, I'm here to see the CTO. And, and they said, fine. And took me up to this CTO's floor. And he had this huge floor full of technicians outside. This is maybe 2002. And they were building their e-commerce platform. And I came in. I sat down with the CTO in his office. He said, would you like a cup of tea? I said, yes, I'd love a cup of tea. He pours me a cup of tea in a plastic cup, uh, which I had no problem with. But I'm not, I'll point that out. And he, it's, relevant, it's relevant to the story. It's relevant <laughs> to the story. So, so he says, so, you know, how can I help you? I said, well, I've got this platform. It's brilliant. It allows you to run your e-commerce without having to build all the tools, without having to manage all the machines, all the sort of grimy stuff of making sure the security is in place and the search technology and the payment infrastructure is secure and so on, and all the machines can cope with the traffic, we've got all of that nailed and a great application. All you have to do is manage the uh, merchandising and of your products. And he said, uh, I'd like to stop you there. Please take your cup and leave. I said, sorry. He said, I've heard enough. Thank you very much. Goodbye. I said, well, you know, and basically he was insulted that I would suggest that he could reduce his team and rent everything. He, he liked the idea of having this big team. Yes, yeah, so I left his fiefdom. Well, it was his fiefdom. And so I, I, as I walked out of there, first of all, I was humiliated. He could have let, given me a chance to finish my tea in the, in the room, you know. Um, I'd driven three hours good to get there. tea as well. Yeah. 
So I walked out holding this plastic cup, you know, uh, going out into the car park, walking across the car park again, getting soaked, sitting. I got into the car and I sat and I was all damp and it was all smelly in there. And I, and I, and I had this other three-hour journey to go through. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, is this what it's come to? You know, a few years ago, I was riding high traveling around the world, you know, running this public company in the US and the UK. Now I'm driving up to Bradford and I'm being basically kicked out of an office after five minutes, ten minutes. And I drove back to London, kind of miserable. And the next day, I signed the BBC to use our service across their uh, e-commerce. And it just goes to show that every day is a new dawn, every... um, you know, every day is a new opportunity, and and that's what life's all about. You know, life is full of these, you know, letdowns, you know, ups and downs, and great moments of joy and and, and achievement. Yeah, I, lo- I love stories like that because it just—you're right. Being an entrepreneur isn't a linear line. No, it, it is. It well, is. life isn't a linear line. I mean, we go through life uh, with ups and downs. It's 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 a, it's a, it's the nature of the beast. And and whatever you see out there, whoever you look at, you know, um, Bill Gates or you know Mark Zuckerberg, whatever, their lives mirror the same thing that we all have. You yeah. know, of ups and downs. It's just what life's about. Yeah, I call it fake book because most people who post stuff on there, you know, it's only the good stuff. No one ever tells you the bad stuff. Yeah. Well, I don't. I committed Facebook suicide in 2007, so I wouldn't know. Oh, well, well done to you. Um, (laughs) Although I have to say, nobody said, don't do it, Dan, don't do it. They just let me go. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So, so Vendor, this is your, you've hit the ball out the park twice now. You've got made, you've got Vendor out the door. You're, you're possibly Britain's most successful young entrepreneur. Not so um, young anymore, but yes. Okay, no. ish. Um, <laughs> along comes number three. Yes, yeah, so number three, you know... Um, you are the serial entrepreneur, you are going for it. What, what was the business and what was the idea? So running Vendor over the, that period, you know, I started to realise that e-commerce didn't meet the needs of the new mobile consumer. And I, I was... Whereabouts are we now in chronology? We're kind of 2008, 2009. Okay, so the early iPhone, was that around? Yeah, the iPhone, I think the iPhone ten, had just been... Ten introduced. years now, yes. Yeah, yeah been around that, around that sort of time that the smartphone was being introduced. And I thought, you know what, these phones are amazing. They're transformative. And they're capable of incredible things. And what's happening is we are serving them as if they're just an extension to a desktop. Uh, and what I mean by that is that when you browse to a website on a mobile phone, the website just, if it's halfway decent, tries to repackage the page to fit on a small screen. And that's the extent of what we call mobile commerce today. And I don't believe that is mobile commerce at all. I think that's just an e-commerce site packaged to fit a small screen. That's not e-commerce. That's just an e-commerce site re- being repackaged for yeah. a small screen. Now, when you take the mobile device and you look at it, it is incredible. It is the most sophisticated comms device we have in our world today and it is the the most important thing in our lives and as i saw my young daughters growing up i saw them um you know not being interested in using a tablet and being absolutely glued to their mobile devices as the primary device of choice and the part the reason for that i think is obviously it's very personal the mobile phone is very personal to you um but it's also, you know, you it's can the talk... the ultimate personal computer. It's the, it's the ultimate personal computer. And, and I felt that what's happened in retail and in... Um, uh, uh, and, and electronically is that we've kind of been iterative in everything we've done. If you go back to physical retail, it started with, you know, you're walking into a, a store and there's a bloke behind the counter and you pay them chickens or 
you know, money over the counter to buy something. Um, then later on, there was a register there to take you know the currency and, and put it into slots and then later on we added this little device on the end of it that would interact with a card and and we just now we now we do these odd things where we go to a restaurant and then we wave at a waiter or a waitress they come over with a machine in their hand and we put the card in the machine it's all very odd you know i mean our behavior has been iteratively moved to a point where i think today retail is kind of out of sync with technology and the consumer uh, such that the market is in decline and and we're seeing retailers go out of business because of it and I I started to feel that that was the case back in 2009-2010 so um, I sat down with my team and I said look let's imagine a world where there is no systems there's no physical systems in retails or restaurants or anything like that and there's no uh, e-commerce systems all that we know for sure is that a consumer has a mobile phone how would we talk to that phone? How would we interact with that device? And that was the foundation of the next business power and, and how we could uh, allow merchants, brands, advertisers, retailers to interact with consumers better. And so we invented this new kind of platform, uh, which, which we call power, which allowed the phone to interact with the world around it. And, and that, um, uh, that was the foundation of... of the third business we went through a journey of uh, realizing that we had created something or that were creating something really transformative we got u.s investment backing to support my own investment in it which was, was this from goldman sachs no the investment came from uh, wellington management in boston okay uh, and it was the largest investment series a investment ever at the time 80 something million uh, was the first round um and we was, sorry on that point did you get that level of investment because you'd hit the ball out of the park twice and people... I think there was an element of that. I think there was a respect for me. Because most people won't get 80 million. No, I think, I think business. there was a respect for me for having done two market leaders already. Right. Uh, so I came in the door with some, you know, credibility. And I had something on the, that, that, I was, that I was, you know, proposing, you know, I was putting forward, which was visionary, exciting, dynamic... And transformative, and so I had all the elements there that would, from an from an investor perspective, be be quite exciting. And um, Wellington Management were very supportive and immediately uh, funded the business with eighty million dollars, and and they valued the business at four hundred million straight away, nice. even though it was a concept at that time, really. Um, so uh, that must have been the world's best PowerPoint. <laughs> I don't even think I used a PowerPoint. I think it was just, I just talked about it. But I think, uh, but then I showed it, you know, I showed the prototype. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we used that money and, and Wellington and, uh, and we believed we had to go big and go large. And just as you said, we had to go fast into the global market. We had to quickly capture the market because this is going to be something that everybody is going to want to use. And this is going to be something that everybody will want to copy, you know, and, and create competitively. Um, so that's what we did. And of course, that required a lot of funding, but had a lot of momentum. And, uh, you know, in the end, uh, we put in $240 million approximately, $245 million uh, was invested into power before uh, its demise. Right. Now, power itself, can you just explain a little bit more about it? So, because we, we, we now take Apple Pay and we take fintech cards like Revolut for granted. Yes. Um, so, was power another like like we have with you know no. today with resolve um a b2b play technology 
Well, so Resolve is an iteration, really, of, of Power. Okay. With you know, it's it's moved on because it's been you know quite some years, nearly ten years now, and certainly since Power went down, it's been you know four years. So things move on in technology, and things move on in in your thinking. You don't always get a chance to reset and start again. And in a way, Resolve is a completely new version of what Power was trying to achieve uh, those years ago. But but fundamentally, um, it is very similar to what Resolve is doing now uh, with great success. Uh, but in those, it, it maybe maybe Power was just a bit too early and ran out of capital to get us there. Uh, okay. Although there were some other factors, but you know, fundamentally, that's that's what um, uh, Power was doing. Okay. Now I, I'm not going to open up old wounds. I promise you that. But. But obviously, it wasn't a success this time. Um, well, no, I'd, I'd like to correct you. I mean, oh, okay, look, on, we can say it, it; it's a glib way of saying it's not a success to say it ran out of money and went out of business. Right. Um, but actually, we had a lot of momentum, a lot of traction, and there was, um, unfortunately, there was a hostile uh, takeover attempt um, at a vulnerable point in the company, uh, which resulted in uh, you know a fight, shareholders standing back. And investors standing back and the thing going up in smoke. Okay. And now, uh, any any anyone listening to this who is a tech entrepreneur or even any entrepreneur um, who is in the growth phase in the in the who is dependent on investors will know that if an investor is excited about investing and then finds out that there's a big fight between directors or there's a fight on the board for a control or something going on, they're going to stand off and wait. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened. The investors stood off. The fight. Took the business, you know, didn't didn't get addressed, uh, and the business went down as a result. Okay, so in terms of for yourself as an entrepreneur, now you, this okay. So whatever happened, and I'm not going to go into the well, it, whatever happened, it, it went down. But you're now in a situation where you're you, you you haven't had the third success. Let's say you're you've got to pick yourself up. I mean, how hard was that for you? Well, there's a, there's a number of factors here, and, and it was extremely hard. Yeah. Um, but there's a number of factors here. The first is, I went into power uh, with great deal of confidence. Okay, I hadn't had a failure. Yeah, I'd only had I've only had success, so I was kind of expecting this one to be another success. And with the momentum we were getting, we signed a very important deal in China. We signed a deal with L'Oreal, with Otto Group, with Deutsche uh, Danske Bank, with this bank, that bank. You know, there's a lot of momentum going on. We signed over a thousand retailers to use the technology. So you know, we were feeling pretty bullish, right? I mean, you don't get that kind of engagement with customers and partners, even though the revenue wasn't covering the cost. You know, we were on the path, right? Uh, so during this period, maybe I was a bit too um, effusive in my rhetoric. Uh, uh, in fact, I will say I was. I was too effusive in my rhetoric because I believed we were going to dominate the market. And, and that resulted in, you know, a lot of press coverage about how we're saving the high street, how power was going to save the high street and how. And then David Cameron came out and said, yeah, how wonderful this was. And, you know, who's the prime minister at the time. And there was a lot of this kind of really excited and we were the, one of the first unicorns, tech unicorns. So, you know, there was a lot of excitement around the business. And so when it went down, there was a lot of anger. There was anger in the tech community because we kind of let them down. 
and that might impact their ambitions in other people's businesses, which I understand. There was anger from investors who lost their money, obviously, and then there was anger, you know, the, the typical sort of media reaction of, you know, let's kick this guy, now he's down. And there was a combination of all those factors uh, made, you know, I, I became, you know, uh, sort of a laughable uh, character who had failed, who thought it was going to be a great thing and it failed. So what an idiot kind of thing. And so the, the rhetoric around it was maybe amplified for those factors. And I took it, you know, full on and, uh, and had to do people it. people who like to say, I told you so. Yeah, look, it's not just about told you so. There was, you know, there was a lot of salacious nonsense around that as well, you know, wild parties and then a lot of nonsense. I mean, you know, that the business was mismanaged, the, the implication being that the whole thing was a mess and a waste of time and it was all a folly and how silly that people threw all their money away. So, um, so that's, uh, you know, that was the kind of the backdrop. And, and, and I remember sitting at home um, with a scotch at around 11 in the morning, you know, uh, thinking to myself, okay... I've got nothing now, right? Everything's blown up. Well, what do I do now? You know, where's it all? I, I, I'm not used to this. I'm not used to this kind of failure and I'm not used to this backlash. Uh, what do I do now? And of course, the only thing I could do, the only thing that my DNA screamed at me to do was to do it again. That's right. the only thing that went through my mind. And that is a really hard thing to do. I mean, it's hard, but there was no other option. So right. again, I wouldn't like to say that, you know, I had lots of different options. I mean, somebody said, get, a friend of mine came over and said, why don't you go and live in America? I was so offended by that. I was like, well, no. Sorry, I asked that question earlier. <laughs> yeah. I said, no, no, no. I mean, right after power went yeah. down. So when you leave the country, you know, everyone's beating you up. It's in the persons and on the new Sky News. It's on, it was on everything, you know. It's a very high-profile uh, story. Um, why don't you leave the country, you know? I was like, no. I'm going to stand here and prove that this was the right vision, in the, yeah, in the first place. Cool. Look, um, when we come back, we're going to the news. When we come back... I've got a couple of things. We're obviously going to go and talk about Resolve again. Yes. Um, but I also want to find out who your most famous entrepreneur is that you met, who you rated. Um, also, um, a little investment that you might have missed out on with eBay <laughs> and, and how the hell that happened. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed it. My guest today is Dan Wagner, the brilliant serial entrepreneur. But we're going over to the news now. We'll see you when we come back. You're listening to Stan Sethi on Marlowe FM. He's got a face for radio. I have indeed. Thank God I do. Um, <laughs> hello and welcome back. You are listening to Sam Talks Technology. Thanks for joining us once again. Uh, I'm with a fabulous serial entrepreneur. His name's Dan Wagner. If you've missed the first hour, you'll have to get the podcast or you'll have to listen again on Marlow FM. But anyway, Dan, hello. Welcome back. Hello, Sam. Okay, so we've, we've covered a little bit about the journey. We started off with obviously talking about your current company, Resolve. We looked at how you went through made, vendor and power. And I, I really want to come back to Resolve again. Um, so for those of you who didn't catch it, Resolve is a technology that's aimed at m-commerce that allows people to interact with print or advertising, voice or anything else. It's a B2B solution that allows you to basically provide targeted advertising to an individual based on them, uh, their location uh, and based on their preferences, I guess, as well. So um, where do you see having done three companies or more I guess because we didn't talk about Brightside and some of the other companies you did um, where do you see Resolve going? What's the end goal for you with Resolve? Well so Resolve is is, is uh, equally ambitious to most of my other um, 
businesses and, and probably even more so. Uh, I believe that Resolve is the intel inside of mobile engagement. That's the, probably the best way to describe it. It is, the, it is a piece of technology that standardizes how to best interact with a mobile phone. And uh, it allows um, the advertiser to use location or image or audio or uh, what's known as Bluetooth beacons, that little transmitters, or to use Wi-Fi or to use any of the things that the mobile phone can wake up to, voice, audio, and so on, um, as a way to trigger an engagement. And, uh, you know, nobody's really doing anything like this. It is a, a development on the, you know, product that we created at Power that, failed um but resolve is 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 picking up that torch and, and taking it forward you know in, in a new guise and um with that in mind which are these platforms so we talked about i mean we're in this digital world we're going from the the analog to digital print through to bus stop as you mentioned yes, earlier yes through to um in store where is your lion's share of the market space for resolve now where do you think your sweet spot is and where do you think it will be well i think i think i think it's forward? i think it's across the board really i mean uh, you know print isn't going away i mean magazines may not be in the format that we have them today but you're still going to have print on labels and you're still going to have print on you know packaging uh and boxes and and things like that and and stickers on the back of you know hardware and so on so uh, print is still around and will it's not going anywhere and so interacting with that being able to interact with that so for example scanning the back of a monitor to get all the service manuals and what have you or uh, scanning a, a you know a sugar packet to to buy more sugar or to find out the ingredients of the sugar or whatever it happens to be or yeah. it's sourced from uh, those things I think are, are are here to stay. Um, so I think the print trigger is a, a major revenue uh, driver for Resolve. I think the geolocation trigger is a huge driver for Resolve. I think that's a great way to drive people into physical stores by putting a geozone around it and triggering that engagement with consumers who come out of the nearby station to go to this store or that store. Because not all stores, most stores are reliant on passing traffic. And not all stores are in high traffic areas. So if uh, you've got a little sandwich shop just around the corner from a, a major transport hub, but you're, not, you're just in a little alley, how do you get those customers into your, coffee, into your sandwich shop or your coffee shop? Well, Geozones can do that. They can drive awareness of you being around the corner and navigate people to your store. So we see that as a big driver. We see broadcasts like this broadcast now being a trigger of engagement because having my phone next to me while I'm listening to the radio and it triggering an engagement on my phone when things are uh, being broadcast is a great way to engage. Um, and so it goes on to the other the other ones too. So I think I think that it's difficult for me to say which one is going to be the biggest driver, but I think that. Uh, geozones will probably be the, 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 the biggest driver initially because every, everyone can put a geozone on right now and create an engagement. Um, whereas with print and other things, there's some, some production work required. Okay. So, um, as I said, the, the, the opening question, I guess, is, is this going to be another float or another trade sale? I mean, or is it too early to I don't, say? I've got no idea. I mean, uh, you know, to too me, to me uh, you know, but I'm not doing it for that reason. You see, right. this is the thing, Sam. You know, I think I'm doing it because I believe that okay. this is the future of engagement and, and I'm going to make it happen. Now, how successful might this company be? Well, my ambition 
is for it to be the standard of mobile engagement globally, that it is part of every single device. So it's a technology. It's, correct. I mean, we've done a deal with Samsung to embed it on every Samsung phone. That gives us about wow. 23% of the world market. We're in negotiations with another major handset manufacturer that I believe will be announced in the coming weeks, which will give us another huge uh, share of the market. And so that means that people with these phones will be able to receive these alerts, engagements, and be able to use their cameras and their audio to engage, um, you know, immediately. And then the question is how the merchants start to use the technology to engage with those consumers. Right. Now, you don't need to have it on your phone. If you've got a phone that doesn't have the technology, you might have it in your M&S app or in your Sainsbury's app or in your, uh, you know, whatever app. Um, uh, so it might be a part of that technology. But, but the, uh, the fact is we're trying to make it something that is a standard in everybody's app and it's a standard on every phone. Okay. So <clears throat> moving, moving it forward, because you told me a wonderful story, so I just need to tell, sure. ask you the same question. You've been, you've been in the industry now since 1984, as you said at the beginning. You've seen pretty much all of it, you know, the dot-com crash, the web 2.0, 3.0. Um, you've met many, many entrepreneurs along that journey as well, some good, some bad. Who's the most inspiring entrepreneur that you've met? Well, there's one standout entrepreneur uh, that I've met, and I've met them all, probably, you know, or certainly most of the, uh, the, the, big tech, the tech guys, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the one that impressed me the most was Rupert Murdoch. And, and when you said that to me earlier, I was, I was like, really? Rupert Murdoch? Yes, yes, Rupert Murdoch. Because he, he's really Marmite. Well, he might be. Um, and, you know, I don't take people about... I, t- I don't take um, a view on somebody who I haven't met. So I I wouldn't take a view on somebody because I read an article about them or so on because often these articles aren't necessarily uh, the gospel. So, uh, but I, I, uh, you know, as I said to you earlier, the the first time I met Rupert Murdoch was back in the early 80s when um, Sky Broadcasting was a huge gamble for uh, a news corp and um, the competitor was the BBC with... uh, British Satellite Broadcasting, or BSB as it was known, and BSB were promoting their satellite service, and Sky were promoting theirs, and there was a battle between the two in the market, and and my understanding was that News Corp were losing £2 million a week, which was a huge amount of money, even then, uh, much more so then, um, and uh, uh, BBC were losing a fortune too. Anyway, I went to sell my information service to the people at the BBC, because I thought they would uh, like to use it. And I saw, um, I went to the BSB uh, building in, in, uh, just off, uh, just in, in London. And it was a huge building by the Thames. And when I walked in, I could see rows of desks with IBM PCs and um, uh, laser jet printers uh, all laid out on, on these desks. And I thought, oh, you know, uh, they're really going for it here. Anyway, um, I then went a few days later to Sky, and Sky were in Isleworth, uh, out of, you know, near the airport. And when I got to Isleworth, there was this corrugated um, office, you know, really it was like a, um, you know, a storage facility on stilts. And I walked up the stairs and walked into this, uh, you know, kind of room, large corrugated steel room. And in the middle was a, was a, um, a, a row of desks. And sitting at one of the desks was, was Rupert, what I found out to be Rupert Murdoch. And as I walked past, somebody shouted, hey, Rupert, Lord Hailsham, or somebody, on the phone for you. And he turned around and said, I'll just be with him in a minute. And he was, there was a hive of activity. He was on the phone in the middle of the secretarial pool. And I thought, oh, my God, he's, he's really got his hands around this. He's really in this, you know, he's really driving this. And I was 
got just impressed by that. I never met him at that point. I just walked past him, but I was impressed. Anyway, fast forward another maybe 10 or 12 years, and Elizabeth Murdoch is now running. Um, she's smart. She's very smart. And she and I met a couple of times, and, and she said, you must meet my father. I said, it'd be an honor to meet him. I'd be very interested to meet him. And so she flew me to Chicago, and I had a meeting with Rupert in his hotel suite, which was, you know, like a a whole floor of a hotel or something, uh, with him and James Murdoch, his son, who was about 20 or 21 at the time. And uh, we spent two and a half to three hours one-on-one having a very intense debate about information, uh, where the information market is going and information overload and information retrieval and so on. And I was really struck by his understanding of what was going on in the tech market. I was really understanding with his, with his grasp of it. And I was... I was motivated by it because like me i try to understand what i'm doing i try to understand the trends in the market i'm not an engineer i'm not a programmer but um you know i I want to understand as much as i can about what we're doing and what's going on in the market and i got the impression that he was doing the same anyway fast forward another couple of weeks and i was invited to another meeting with him and his leadership team in new york at their offices in new york and again, uh, we were talking about how we were delivering internet access to hotel rooms. And when I was explaining that we use a satellite dish on the roof of the hotel, and blah, blah, blah. And Rupert asked some very specific questions about the delivery of the transponder, how the data was being delivered and everything that showed a huge understanding of satellite delivery and satellite broadcasting, which... Um, you know, I just thought, this guy's brilliant. I love him, you know. And, and everything I've seen him do since then, I've been very impressed. He's a smart operator. So, by far, number one, Rupert okay. Murdoch. Which, which was, I have to say, the most surprising answer. I, I didn't expect that from you at all. But, <laughs> uh, you know, again, I've not had the chance to meet the man himself and never been that fortunate. Um, clearly very successful. So, you know, he must be good at what he does. Um, now, as I said, you've been involved in the internet from its pretty much the day dot one really. yes um you must have invested into everything then you must have been you know oh there's amazon i'll have a flutter on them and oh there's ebay i'll have a flutter on them no did you no i haven't so here's the here's the, the great <laughs> misses uh the top 10 misses from dan wagner okay um uh top of the list number one uh pierre omidyar the founder of eBay, worked for me in Mountain View. He was a project manager working for a girl called Libby Trudell, who was my head of project management in Mountain View in the United States. And I was working in America. This is 96, I think it was. Uh, And Libby comes to my office and says, you know, Pierre, um, you know, works in my department. He's leaving to set up this thing, a flea market for the internet. Uh, And he's looking for investment and he wants... One million dollars for thirty-three percent. Okay, and I went really. I said no, no, we don't have money for that, and that was the end of the conversation. Uh, One million dollars, thirty-three percent, probably thirty billion of value on a one million dollar investment. <laughs> probably, right? What I should have done, of course, is say, well, I don't have any money to invest, but give Pierre a table and a desk, give him access to our services here, take us, take some equity for being part of it, for giving him the desk. And, uh, and, we'll wish, and we'll give them as much support as we can. That would have been the thing that would have made sense. But at the time, I just didn't... I didn't have the money, to be honest with you. I didn't have the money to put into no, ventures I mean, just randomly, and a million dollars is a million dollars. Number two, uh, Brent <laughs> Hoberman came to see me for lastminute.com. He wanted a million pounds for 50%. Uh, I should have given it to him. I didn't. 
what else have I got? Oh, yes. Uh, Jim Clark came to see me in London. Jim this Clark, was a bit... the inventor of Netscape with Mark Andreessen. Yes, and he was also the founder of Silicon Graphics, uh, yes. which was a hardware company. So he was already a, a billionaire or certainly worth an awful lot. He came to my office in, in the 90s, I can't remember exactly when, and said, look, I'd like you to invest in uh, Netscape browser and we're offering you 1% for $1 million. And I said, how can you value this browser at $100 million when it... That doesn't even exist yet. And he said, well, it will. It will exist, and it will be the number one browser in the world. Yeah, well, I was the, one of the marketing guys up for it, so I, I kind of believe that. Yeah. So if I ask you for a million quid for my next idea, you're going to give it to me, obviously. No, you know but that. I'll give you a desk in my office. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I thought I was in there for that one. <laughs> um, okay, so... Um, what other businesses that you didn't invest in? Looking back now, with the with the advantage of hindsight, what businesses are obviously Jeff Bezos's, but other businesses that you thought I admire that business? Well, I admire lots of business. I admire any business uh, that has become a success and has been driven off the efforts of a of a of a leadership team or an entrepreneur um, against the odds. I, I admire all of that because I know how difficult it is, and I know and I know what it takes, what you have to give up to to achieve these these things. They they don't come easy at all. It's, it's, it's glib to look at these things and say, oh, yeah, that was easy. You know, he got lucky. It's never luck. It's, you know, it's always enormous effort uh, to get these things off the ground. So I admire them all. Uh, but I wouldn't invest in it. I mean, I'm not an investor. I'm an entrepreneur. There are investors who are bloody good at what they do. Uh, many of them have invested in me and done very well. Um, and have done other, and I've seen other other investors, you know, trade in the markets and stuff, and make a huge amount of money. That's not what I do, and I can't. I'm not analytical enough. I'm too much of a sales guy, and I'm too passionate, and so I'm actually the wrong profile. I'm not analytical enough to be an investor. I follow my heart, uh, and I and I throw my heart and soul into what I do. Um, to make sure that I make I get the result I want, but that's not how you should invest. You should invest using uh, maybe a bit of that, you know, a small amount of of intuition. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, I think I think there are other factors to to be consistently successful that I just don't possess those. So I don't think I would. I don't invest in things really. I, I invest in my own things because I know that if I'm backing myself, I know what I'm capable of. Right, and and would you? Would you say have a technical background as well? As well no, as I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I enjoy technology and, and, and I, I like to use technology. I like to, um, I like gadgets and things like that. And I understand enough to be a danger to my tech department. <laughs> you know, uh, sometimes they'll try to say something to me and I can call them out because I know better or I know I understand more. And I'd like to think that I get to grips with the business that I'm involved with to the degree that Rupert Murdoch demonstrated to me all those years ago. Okay. So, um, we've been looking back. Let's look forward a bit. Um, I call this the talking 20s now rather than the roaring 20s. I think voice is going to be the big thing. I think um, you, you talk about uh, Resolve being the M-commerce platform, the standard. Um, I think by the end of the decade maybe will will we have the mobile phone in the form that we have it in or will it will it be broken up into wearables and stuff where, where, where do you think the next iteration of all this technology is maybe well i think i think that uh, you know first of all there's the internet of things where uh, everything around us is going to be connected um and be able to provide information and, and service 
functions to us, um, like your refrigerator or your television which or whatever. Which is multiple touch points for a Resolve, really. Correct. Yeah, these are all touch points for Resolve. So, I, you know, I'm very comfortable with all of that. Um, and I think that, the, you know, the device, that the, the device that we walk around with, the mobile phone, uh, may, or wait, may or may not end up being something that is, you know, not, uh, you know, in our hand and more as a wearable. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I would imagine that we're going to still interact with a device of, of some type, and it might be a, a pair of glasses or something. But, uh, you know, I think, I imagine that the mobile phone will be around for a while. And uh, you've got a very fancy mobile phone. I do. I've got, a fo- I've got one of those new foldable ones. I've not from seen one until Samsung. Today. Well, they're amazing. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I'm a big advocate for things that I think are brilliant. And the foldable Galaxy Fold from Samsung, which is uh, basically it's a mobile phone that then becomes a tablet. Then you fold it and it becomes a phone again. And it's amazing. The screen, and uh, you know, uh, is perfect. It doesn't have any uh, blemishes or, you know, issues with it. And I've had it now for, for, a, for a little while, a couple of months. And uh, I love it. It's fantastic. Fantastic, and I think that we're going to see more of those uh, innovations in the mobile device that um, you know will make make it much more usable. Um, because the, the issue up until now is that the mobile phone has relatively small screen, and when you want to read detailed documents and stuff, you have to sort of go to a desktop. Whereas if you can open it up, now it's not no longer a small screen; it's a big screen. Then so that kind of changes the form factor sufficiently to make it really usable. Um, so I I I think that. Um, you know, I think mobile phones are, are going to be around. I don't think it changes much for Resolve. I think Resolve has a has a place um, in the in the next few decades as a, 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 a technology that allows interaction between consumers or human beings and the devices around them in a better way. You asked about voice, and I'd just mm. like to touch on that for a minute. I, I don't have an Alexa um, like uh, device, six. and I don't have them because I, I'm uncomfortable with. Um, the idea that it's listening when I don't want it to listen. Okay. And I know that our phones have always on mics and stuff and, uh, uh, you know, and and yeah, yeah, there is an element of that, but it's starting to get a little bit uncomfortable when, you know, it's listening to, to, to you all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, I, I think that there are, you know, we're moving into an area now where, um, you know, things like GDPR, which we've introduced here in Europe, which is a very stringent, process around data protection is something that needs to be adopted globally as a sort of because it's not good enough california just just brought this equivalent in gdpr equivalent in january oh did they okay well that's very good to know um uh, but you know whilst it remains siloed into europe and california and maybe one or two others everybody can place their services outside of there and the internet doesn't distinguish it really so you're not necessarily going to know oh i'm dealing with a company that say puts its servers in texas so i'm not protected oh this one does have its servers in california so i am Uh, and i think you know until we get that kind of commonality there's there's an element here of of consumer concern that might hold back the tech industry uh, in its innovation and might hold it back in terms of its ability to to get adoption. Uh, but other than that, I think I think these are all wonderful things. I like the idea of uh, interacting with devices around us through through speech uh, and gestures. I think they're all really good things. They're good. They're good enhancements. Yeah, because I mean, um, Amazon at CES have just announced a deep integration with the BMW and uh, a couple of other car manufacturers where, you know, you're removing the um, music interface and you're replacing it with a pure voice interface, but also things like 
turning down the windows or opening the the boot can all be done with a voice so again i'm trying to think of resolve i'm driving past and a voice information system because i won't want a screen information system uh will be able to tell me oh by the way just around the corner mns have got a special offer on if you park up here that might be that might be a bit uh, too intrusive. I mean, the, 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 it's in the same way that if you're driving along, you don't want to hear every email that comes in. Um, you might want to be notified that something's coming, but you don't want to necessarily hear it all coming in yeah. all the time. I think the same is true with any sort of geolocation trigger or, or offer. I think some of those things sometimes, you know, are are things that you want to be you know that are available, but then you go and check out yourself. Um, but, you know, again, as I said before, we're a technology. We don't care how people deploy it. So if somebody wants to deploy it where they keeps throwing stuff at you, vo- yeah. you know, audibly, then fine. Our technology can handle that, but it's, it's up to the, uh, the customer or our partner to determine how they want to use our tech. Okay. I've got one last question because it's a trend I've been observing, and I think it goes back to made, actually. I think I, I've been thinking about it while we've been talking. I think we've come full circle. So made from what we talked about earlier was a subscription service for information. Yes. Um, and successfully. But um, and I, I sort of think we went, the internet model then went to the freemium model, ad supported, you know, Facebook's free, Twitter's free, papers were free. And then Murdoch, who you mentioned earlier, brought in the paywall for the FT. Uh, the Times, yeah. Times, sorry. Yeah. And The Sun uh, didn't do it. But, but, but he's, I think The Times hit their millionth subscriber recently or something like that um i think we're beginning to see a trend that this is something i just i'm observing where we're going back to the subscription model now we talked about it briefly with spotify and with netflix do you think that's going to happen given that you had probably one of the first subscription models out there really yeah well both both made and vendor were subscription models um vendor was a was a monthly fee plus Utilization of uh, you know because it was the first SaaS cloud. It was the, one of the first cloud. Yeah, so I, I, I'm a big fan of subscriptions because you sell it once, and it's recurring income thereafter until you lose the client. I mean, it's a recurring revenue, so you don't have to keep selling it every year. And the businesses that require you every year to sell again to the same customers, so, such as you know design agencies, you sell them a design, and then next year you have to go and sell them a new design. Mm. You know, is a very tough business to manage and grow. Subscription businesses, you have the retention of 80%, 90% of your clients or more, if you hopefully, and all the new ones that you add on top just keep building the pie. So, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of it. Uh, I think that consumers who are inundated with subscription-based services um, will be more circumspect about how managing their subscriptions. Well, certainly I am, and I'm, I, I, can af- I can afford to, to have lots of subscription services, but I don't. I don't want them all, and sometimes I'll subscribe to something and then... I said, well, I don't need that anymore. Uh, in the past, there have been occasions where I suddenly, have I, am I still subscribing to that? I haven't looked at that for, you know. And so you, 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 you know. That's what they hope you'll do. That's what they hope you'll do. It's like but a I don't, gym I, membership. But I don't think people, I think people are getting cute to that. And okay. I, I think that they won't do that. I think, I think you have to provide essential services for people to subscribe. And so, for example, we were talking earlier about Netflix and then Apple Plus, Apple TV Plus and, and other things. Well, I'm, I'm, I could subscribe to them all if I wanted to but I've got sort of entertainment overload Netflix does what it needs to do Sky I've got as well for uh, you know broadcast uh, services I don't have any other um, streaming services and I'm not going to get any other streaming services because I don't need them I've got enough Uh, so I don't think 
uh, Apple TV Plus is for me, and I don't think the Disney new subscription-based services, and if anybody else comes up with one, I'm not going to subscribe to that either. Right. Does Resolve use any subscription? Are you, is, given that you've got a history of, of building subscriptions into your businesses? No. Okay. No, it, well, it kind of does in the geozones um, because you buy a geozone for a period of time. Right. So if I'm a store, a retail store, um, I can put a geozone around the store or around a nearby uh, hub and I can pay for that for one day or for one week or for one month or whatever. But we encourage you to subscribe for the year it's cheaper if you if you do it and it just sort of rolls on so yes in terms of of subscription services i think the geozones are but all advertising based things are um you know based around the printed asset so if i create a product label that's on every coca-cola can then kind of that's a subscription because it's going to be on that coca-cola can i'm not going to stop it being interactive Um, but if it's a tv campaign or a press campaign it might only last for a month or two and then you you cancel that engagement. Cool. Dan Wagner, it's been fascinating talking to you. You're You're a serial entrepreneur. I loved your story. Thank you. Um, I wish you the best of luck with Resolve. How can people, again, just remind us, if they wanted to find out more about Resolve? They should go to resolve.com, which is R-E-Z-O-L-V-E, as in resolve with a Z, or a Z, rather than an (laughs) S. Brilliant. Dan Wagner, thank you very much. Sam, that show was amazing. To listen again, please visit our website, marlofm.co.uk, or visit our Facebook group, Sam Talks Technology. And now you can subscribe on iTunes. Never miss a show again. See you next week. Same time, same place.